This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio Season 5, Episode 43. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 43 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funy-Hetton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funy-Hetton. And today, we're welcoming David Houle, a futurist, thinker, and speaker. David has been speaking and writing about the future for well over a decade. He writes the highly regarded futurist blog, Evolution Shift, with the tagline, A Future Look at Today. David is the author of numerous books and ebooks, including his influential first book, The Shift Age, and his book about transformation in K-12 education, Shift Ed, A Call to Action for Transforming K-12 Education. So welcome to the podcast, David. It's my pleasure to be here. It's my pleasure. Well, we're excited to have you here as uh, a preeminent uh, futurist, but also around to talk around a topic that we are really very curious about uh, here in our roles in K-12 education. So let's begin the conversation uh, with a little bit of a personal story. Um, you're currently working as a futurist, but you certainly have a very diverse background. Share with us your path to becoming interested in the future. Well, I can go on at length about that, but basically, um, um, I, when I was a young man, um, I read a lot of science fiction, and I read most of the works of the three great futurists of the last half of the last century, which was uh, Marshall McLuhan, Alvin Toffler, and R. Buckminster Fuller. So reading those futurists and reading science fiction uh, and having traveled all around the world all my life, I was very you know, curious about what's next and had had realized that a lot of science fiction was becoming science fact. Uh, so that's one answer. The other answer is that professionally, I always did things that, that people said would not work uh, or were stupid that I should do. Um, one example is in 1980, um, I was the number one salesperson at CBS in Chicago. <laughs> And I took literally a 50% pay cut to go join the team that was creating MTV at the time. You know, it's about 30 people when I joined them. And at that time in 1980, cable was only in 10% of the country. So, oh, cable will never work. Uh, video music, what are you talking about? And then we also launched Nickelodeon. Gee, a channel for kids? No one's ever going to watch that. <laughs> and then we did a transponder deal with Ted Turner. So I ended up on the ad sales side, um, uh, selling CNN and CNN headline news. And of course, gee, no one's ever going to watch a 24-hour news channel, right? So, you know, I was right. Um, and then in the late 90s, I was in um, 
I was the managing director of one of the very first countries that created online courses. And of course, online courses, that'll never work. So <laughs> all my, it really wasn't until this century that I realized that my gift was uh, knowing what's going to happen next. And I had a kind of a transformative uh, speech at Berkeley where I spoke to all, I was speaking about the, the merger of uh, technology and education at the time coming out of that uh, online learning company. And uh, I spoke to all the leaders of uh, uh, higher ed in, at the Berkeley, at the uh, California higher ed in terms of technology. So, you know, I kind of, that was transformative because it was a moment where I was like totally in the zone. I was leading a conversation of 70 or so PhDs and I was talking about the future. So then I came back and, and uh, decided to become a full-time futurist. So you have the gift of uh, predicting what's next. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, courses. Who would have ever guessed? <laughs> right, exactly. I Nickelodeon mean, Nickelodeon and on and right, on, right? Our news. The, the interesting thing, and and you know, I'll wait till you, we talk. I, I have an anecdote about that, but I'll wait till we talk about higher ed because it's more apropos for that. But you know, so that's that's the quick answer. Um, and of course, once I developed it, um, you know, on my website davidhool.com, I'm the only futures that puts up what I forecasted when I said it. I'm a little behind because I've been writing a bunch of books now, but, yeah. but um, you know, because my value, the, the only thing I honor above all else is to be accurate about my forecasts. And I've always, I'm extremely accurate 18 months to five years out, directionally accurate after, beyond that. And the only time I've ever been wrong is really relative to scale or exact timing. So. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when, once you get a sense of being right, it also makes you trust your gut, trust whatever it is that I bring to this. Mm -hmm. So in K-12 education, Randy and I are both um, a superintendent and associate superintendent, and many of our listeners are in the K-12 right. sector. Um, so can you help us frame the idea of transformation in education and why it's so important for us to re-energize, reinvent, and transform the system um, that we've all lived through, <laughs> learned with, and um, are now currently leading. Right. So the first part of the answer is why the existing education needs to change. And then the second part is, you know, what's ahead that means it has to change. Um, I gave a speech to uh, a national conference, I think it was in 2009, out in Phoenix to uh, high school principals. Uh, I don't, don't need to go into why I was there, but I was giving a talk. And afterwards, a guy came up to me and he introduced himself as the acquiring uh, publisher of a of Corwin, which is, a, as you probably know, is a big educational um, uh, imprint in the case of 12. And he said, Will you, would you be interested in writing a book about what you just said? And I said to him, well, what do you think I just said? And he said, you said the audience, that if anybody knows what the future of education looks like, they're wrong. And I said, oh, I can do that easily, right? So I wrote that book, and basically the premise was to start over, you know, from a, as a futurist, I'm a historian. So what did you have? You have a school year. Now, again, this is 2009, 2010. Some things have changed. But uh, you have a school year based on the agricultural age, you know, spring break, you can go home to plant, summer, you can go work the crops with your fa family. And we were teaching on an agricultural year in an industrial age building, 
where a hundred years ago, the whole thing was rows of, rows of chairs and the bell would get off and you get up and you move someplace else down the assembly line so that when you graduated from college, high school, you were prepared to go into the factory. So that was the factory model. And then in the information age, we kind of added, you know, language labs and computers. So basically we have, we've entered the shift age, which is what I'm known for. And you referenced that book. And so now we're in the shift age with agricultural age and primarily industrial age structures in the education. So uh, that had to change. So, uh, and then of course, in writing that book, you go in and you do all the comparisons, you know, uh, how does K through 12 in the United States rate, you know, to places like Finland and Singapore and all the obvious ones, and we rate very poorly. And one of the things I, I coined a phrase in that book, you know, I'm an aging baby boomer, and I coined the phrase that the boomer generation was the bridge generation in K through 12, because basically at 2010, at most of the time, uh, principals, superintendents were baby boomers or older part of the Gen X. So they were running institutions and were mindful of the way they'd been educated. So there was this legacy thinking of perpetuation. They were the bridge between what used to be and what needs to be. And, um, you know, the other problem with any profession is who's teaching the teachers, right? So you go to the teaching colleges, you go to the, sec you know, where people get their masters, and who's teaching them? The new teachers, the people who are bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and have idealism about, about education, and they're the baby boomers who, you know, were blah, 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 blah. So it's a self-perpetuating thing. So I figured you have to really blow that up. Uh, the, the key thing I, I can reduce it to is ask all the questions anew. Why does the school year have to be the way it is? Why does the school day have to be the same for seven-year-olds and 17-year-olds? Why do you have a facility that's only used, you know, some 40 hours a week, nine months out of the year? Why do you have a facility, as an educator in, a, in Georgia once said, when you fly over uh, a, a high school, a suburban high school, the only thing it looks like is a prison where you have wall, you have walls around it, then you have green, then you have a building and you have security. And, you know, we basically incarcerate our youth at age seven and let them uh, out, of, out of the, the prison at age 18. So, uh, you know, it really had to be redone. So that's the first part. Mm -hmm. The second part is, as I say in my presentations now, I'm a general futurist, uh, and a series of books I'm going to start writing about the 2020s, 2017 to 2037, roughly a 20-year period, there'll be more change than in any other 50-year period in history. So like we're sitting here in June 2019, and a month from now, we're all going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of Armstrong walking on the moon. There'll be more change between now mm. and say the end part of the 2030s than since 1969. So how can an already out-of-date education structure that is not performing well globally even be considered to be remotely prepared to deal with the changes that are coming? So it's this idea of transformation being on the, on the other side, something that looks totally different right. than what we have. And, and you're saying, like, let's re-ask those questions to come up with what that might look like. So mm -hmm. we oftentimes remind our folks here in the school district that 
our current kindergartners who are just finishing their kindergarten year are going to graduate in 2031. As a futurist, what are you seeing in terms of the signals out there that are going to, uh, what's that, what's education going to look like across that span of the next 12 years or so? And what's the world going to look like? And how is that going to influence and impact education and help move us towards this transformation? I often say that the reality that we lived with up to 2000 and the reality when start to live in the 2030s is completely different. So this 30 year period of the shift age is the transition from reality as to what was to reality is what's going to be a couple of just a few things to show you why um, education has to change. First of all, uh, people call it artificial intelligence. I call it technological intelligence because it's real intelligence. It's not artificial. If you look up the definition of intelligence, the word human is not in it. So therefore, why do we call it artificial? Because anything that's artificial is less than. So I, I think that linguistically there is a, a already built-in bias against it. So it's technological intelligence. So technological intelligence uh, based on the, the most quoted Oxford study of 2013, from the vantage point of 2013, the Oxford researchers said that 47% of all jobs in the United States would be gone by 2030 due to technological intelligence, right? So, so what are we preparing our, our children to learn? And I'm the futurist in residence and guest lecturer at the Ringling College of Art and Design. And I'm there because as a futurist, I know that 20th century, left brain century, 21st century, right brain century, so that the critical curriculum for a child who is going to graduate from high school in 2031 are all the soft skills, or all the human skills, or all the presentational storytelling skills uh, for, for the new world, and that that uh, memorization doesn't matter. I mean, I... You know, I, I, I have, I'm holding up an iPhone 8 Plus, right? This is the single greatest transformational device in human history. I mean, I'm holding in my hand what a line cook at a restaurant here holds in his hand, you know, maybe an iPhone 6 or an Android, whatever. But the point is that, is that the richest person in the world 30 years ago didn't have this. This is faster than the Cray supercomputer of the 1970s or 80s, right? So, so... Uh, technology is taking over. We're actually going to be merging. I mean, if we get through climate change, um, uh, the the uh, we're we're at the next evolutionary step of humanity, which is the merging of humans and technological intelligence. I mean, it's an evolutionary step. So, how do we persuade? You know, how do we teach children that? Um, uh, and it, it has to be completely reinvented. You know, it, 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 I say to Ringling College students, granted I'm talking college, uh, I used to say in 2013, uh, you people are gonna be okay because technological intelligence is not creative. Well, that's no longer true. So I'm saying to them, the good news is you may wanna become a computer uh, animator or a digital designer or something, but you may end up running Corporate, Fortune 500 corporations because having gone through the uh, curriculum of design thinking and create, creative thought is going to be better prepare you for any aspect of the future than, you know, having a business major or being an engineer. Mm -hmm. So is the current curriculum that's been around for quite some time now, 100 years, the basic curriculum that we're teaching kids, 
are you saying that it's outdated for this world that those kindergartners are going to go into in 2031? It's no not serving well. I mean, one of the joke things I used to say when I gave all those talks about education around the country was, you know, you have a five-year-old who's coming into kindergarten who knows how to shoot a, uh, a YouTube video, edit it, and upload it. <laughs> so you're going to have people with two to three years of digital experience coming into kindergarten where the baby boomer teacher is saying, oh, let's have the bright, pretty colors, and let's have nap time, and let's have story time. And it's just like, well, at that moment, a seven-year-old is going to go, what is this? It doesn't relate to the reality of my life, mm -hmm. right? So the curriculum as it has existed since I went to grammar school is totally out of date for what is needed and for the students that it is being forced onto. I, I, I spoke at the uh, largest, uh, geographically largest school district east of the Mississippi, which includes Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And this was, you know, 2011 or something. And they'd all read my book, Shift Ed. It was great. There were about 300 people in the room. And they were mostly um, uh, all the principals, associate principals, curriculum leaders, and senior teachers. Um, and they'd read the book. So I did a presentation. Then I had an interaction. And one of the interesting things that came up was I was talking about technology. And I, I sent something in the room. I said, stop. Let me ask what is the anxiety I'm feeling in this room? And, you know, at the time, mostly baby boom Gen Xers, right? I mean, there are no millennials that were teaching at that point. And I said, what is it? And, you know, baby boomer woman kind of raised her hand and said, well, um, we make our students turn their cell phones off when they come into the classroom or leave them in their locker rooms. And I went nuts. I said, why are you doing that? It, you know, it, it, it's three keystrokes away from the greatest, all the world's knowledge. Why would you possibly have them turn it off? And the answer was really insightful because we don't know what they're doing on them. At which point I said, so when I was in grammar school, sitting in the back row and doodling with the pencil, you're going to take my pencil away from me? <laughs> I mean, it makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And so I suggested to them and they actually did this. I don't know if they've continued. I said, look. Do the kids know you know that, that you don't know technology? Yes. Do they use technology? Yes. So I said, so why don't you get some geeky sophomores and every Thursday at 3.30 have the geeky sophomores teach the baby boomers teachers how to use a smartphone. And one, the, the, the students will all find out about it and they'll respect you for admitting your ignorance. Two, you'll learn. And then three, you can go from being a monologuist in the front of the room to be an ed, a learning facilitator, like in the first five minutes of class. Okay, you five, look up this. You five, look up this. You five, look up this. And in, and in 10 minutes, we're going to get together and discuss what we learned. I said, isn't that, you know, I mean, they're much more collaborative anyway. Isn't that, a, and they started to do it to some effect. Yeah, we talk a lot about agency and control. And one of the ways that we're trying to shift our work here is by, helping the educators see that that shift is in agency and control and who owns it. And in that example, the teacher was really fearful of giving up that control and that agency of, of what was going on in their classroom. And we need to push that more because that agency and that control is going to be a skill uh, as we move into this age, I think, where there's more focus on individuality and, and people can do just about anything now that you, they've got that device. And so how do we 
help them own that work and not wait for somebody to tell them exactly what to do. So agency right. and control is one of the connections that I was making there to your answer. And I think there's a lot of, you know, one of the things I wrote in my book is, you know, analyze why there's why there needs to be grades. I don't mean ABC grades. I mean, first, second, third, fourth grades, right? Somehow we've decided a hundred years ago to institutionalize education around everybody being the same age. Like all this stuff about your birthday has to be before so-and-so, after so-and-so. What does that have to do with learning, right? You know, we all know that, that girls mature more quickly than boys, right? So, oh, we have all these problems with boys. You know, let's drug them up. Well, two things. One, you know, acknowledge the, 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 the different le stages of development. And two, you know, what they started doing a few years ago, which is, oh, how to get boys off drugs in grammar school, put in recess. Remember that concept called recess? You know, so, you know, I just think that I just think that along the way, all the wrong decisions relative to to, you know, teaching towards grades and, and not allowing technology is just dead wrong. So thinking about that, and a big piece of that is mindset. Um, and Brandy mentioned control and agency and teachers needing to evolve in mindset, as particularly in those two areas. And how might we enroll more K-12 educators, especially our leaders, our board members, and our community members to embrace a more futures-focused mindset that will help us do this work to truly transform schools? God, well, you know. <laughs> Endless answers to that question. Um, three of them. First of all, I always I always told school superintendents that the single most important thing to do was to get almost by definition parents of K through twelve now at least six through twelve are, are Gen Xers, right? Said so make sure you have influential Gen X parents on the school board. They want their kids to be prepared for the future. They are open to change. They are also, uh, you know, have stature in the local community. So the politicians will know them and they also vote. So the best thing a school superintendent to do is to do is to have highly uh, high profile, well-educated, well-meaning parents on the school board because I always found it was a laugh line when I spoke to school administrators, I would say to them, I said, it used to be that um, uh, I always heard about the teacher student ratio. What I want to ask you folks about is the bureaucrat to teacher ratio. And they all laughed, right? I mean, it's, it's been taken over by politics and politicians. I mean, why should politicians know anything about healthcare? They don't have MDs. Why should politicians know anything about education? Yeah. They don't have degrees in education. So get them the hell out of the way. I'm using a softer word. Um, so uh, that's one thing. The second thing is you talk about control. In my book, Entering the Shift Age in 2012, I wrote about shift age power. And baby, up to the shift age, power is about control. I want to control this relationship. I want to control this company. I want to control this city. I want to control this country, right? The new students, starting with millennials, power is about influence. I want to create a meme that will go worldwide for a week. I want to put up something that will get 100,000 views right away. So, so just the fact that you use the word control 
shows that you're speaking from an outdated generational point of view relative. And I like to use the word customers Mm. for students because customer satisfaction at K through 12 is probably the lowest level of customer satisfaction of any institution in the United States. Ask a six-year-old how much they love school. Ask them all, right? In great schools, in new schools, they'll say, oh, we love it. But don't we all go based on reviews, right? I mean, do you buy a re- you go to a restaurant because of a review, you go to a resort because of a review. If you were to let all the customers of K through 12 review the institution, it would have some of the lowest ratings in any institution in the United States. Mm-hmm. And here's, what, here's the third reason why. This is a typical concept, okay? When I started as a futurist, the first thing I did was to start my blog that you referenced called Evolution Shift. Because I believe that the shift age has started what will take about 50 years to a complete evolutionary shift in human consciousness. So I look at it from a generational point of view. The other thing is we're moving from place to space. When I was a kid, my aged relatives were 1,500 miles away in Florida. So it was a high degree of we'd have to drive for three days to get to that place every other year. Mm. Now grandma's just two clicks away on the, on the phone. So a young person today dealing with grandma who's age four is in a complete spatial relationship, right? And we're getting globally connected. More people have cell phones and have indoor plumbing and indoor electricity. So the point is that we're moving from place to space and through these generations, that is being manifested in the generation. So the baby boom is the last generation to have a fundamental correlation to identity relative to place. The, the millennials is the first transition. They're much more collective, right? I mean, why did Obama have the second highest plurality among 18 to 24 year olds after African-Americans? Because he said, yes, we can. So they're much more collective in their thinking, which is completely different than baby booms are much more egocentric, right? And then you get to the, what I call the digital natives. I don't believe in Gen X, Gen Y and Gen Z because what are you gonna do, go through the alphabet again? So, so it's kind of like uh, digital natives. So the first generation born into the digital landscape starting 1998 in America, which means they're the first generation of the 21st century. You talk to a millennial who has a younger brother or sister, and they say they're so different than we are. So the millennials, and I've talked to a lot of them, think of themselves as the bridge generation between their parents and their younger brothers and sisters. So there's a consciousness going on. So how do you, how does somebody who has a place-based consciousness able to connect to somebody who is going to end up living their life in a space-based collective consciousness? In other words, I truly believe that we're going to have collective consciousness if we get past climate change, um, you know, by the 2040s. We already have brainwave computer interface, right? I mean, we've gone from touch screen, we've gone from from keyboard to touch to voice. The next is brainwave computer interface. So we spend the next 10 years, you know, there'll be people in high school in the 2020s that will be not going to be learning keyboarding. They're going to be learning brainwave computer interface, right? And, and so uh, there's, a, there's a whole, I see a sequence, I'll do it your way, I see a sequence of you know, going from the silent generation, the baby boom generation, the millennial generation, the digital native generation into the next one. 
And it's a whole change in, in consciousness. And so how can you possibly teach from a power control, ego, place-centric place to prepare children for a completely collective, universal, globally connected reality? So, so many connections in this uh, conversation that were happening, but I have to tell you that um, in conversations amongst our peers in these in these roles that we have, this is uncommon. This this conversation about the future is not something that is the norm in the kind of conversations that we have. How do we create uh, some urgency in in K-12 leadership to, to start to bring these conversations onto the, the plate of the work that we do, because it's we believe it's so important, but yet it's just so absent. Mm-hmm. So, so the first way is just to state the obvious, where if you, if you, you know, even though Einstein says that the future, the, the, the past, the present, the future is just arbitrary, right? I mean, it's all one time, it's all one thing, it's all one source of energy and all that. But if you accept for the moment that there is a past, a present, and a future, the simple thing to ask any K-12 educator is where are you, are your students, where are your customers going to be living? Are they going to be living in the past? No, they're going to be living in the future. Okay, you know, that starts the conversation. How can we possibly not think about where they're going to be living and how they're going to be living in the world they're going to be living in? To educate them, I mean that's just, I mean that's such a fundamental question, right? If nobody's thinking about the future, you're not preparing your children because that's the only place they're going to live. Mm-hmm. I mean that's the, that's the big concept right. way to open it up. Yeah, Except I mean, I, like, I wonder if we think that the future is like the present. It seems like that's the kind of no, conversation that we're having now. I know it's not, but it's the mindset of of people in K twelve is sort of like. That's why that's why K twelve screwed up. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, that's why it screwed up. I mean, you know, it, it, it's like, I, I mean, it, it frustrates me, right? I mean, whenever I give a speech, I'm talking to business people. I'm talking to a room of two thousand people in a conference. I'm talking to a boardroom of, of uh, people who you know, C level people in a company. I say the first thing I want to ask you to do is suspend to suspend what you think reality is because reality is nothing more than what you've experienced and learned in your lifetime plus what was passed on by your parents. So one and a half lifetimes of reality. I'm asking you to suspend that because you will not be able to see the future if it's in conflict with your sense of reality. So what you're, the way I would say it back to you, what you just said is the, your colleagues are living in their sense of what reality is. You know, the, the quote I used all the time for educators is the great weight, and I'm sure you've heard it, but, you know, when Wayne Gretzky was asked, why are you the greatest hockey player of all time? He says, I always skate to where the puck's going to be, not where it is. And that is the metaphor to answer this question. Are you teaching your children to be integral parts of a society in 2035 or not? Or are you teaching them for what you see the reality now is? Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it, it, it's such a fundamental yeah. basic. Yeah. So before we get to K, uh, get to higher education, because right. that's a connection that K-12 sure. is pretty strong to, how do you find that your message resonates with the K-12 community? Well, I haven't been as actively involved in it as I was, say, seven or eight years ago. Um, but what I found was, so I, so the book came out in 2011 and the iPad came out in 2010. And what I found in 2011 and 2010, literally all across this country, I mean, I spoke at national things, was the superintendent who had a vision would always come up to me afterwards and said, by the end of next year, we're going to have iPads for everybody down to the sophomore level. And then by 2012, we're going to take it down to third grade. So there would be, there would be, I'd say 50 school superintendents, there'd be two or three that just wanted to break the mold. And I ended up relating to them because they were creating the future. So most of the others said, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but there were a couple of situations where, where I was really impressed. I, I want to say it was 2012, 2013, might've been 2014. I, I went, you know, I was based in Chicago at the time. I'm now in Florida. And, and I went to, um, I think it was South Bend and they had aggregated several school districts. And in Indiana has a really cool, unique system um, that there's a thing called Ivy Tech, which is a statewide community college, right? So it's, it, so they're playing around with the elevation out of high school into community college more quickly, and it's a state level. But I'm sitting there and talking to them, and I talk about um, what I just said, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes ago about why hold the school year. And two of these um, districts were saying, uh, well, we're operating with the four times 13. I said, tell me what that is. And they said, they go to school for 13, for 10 weeks. They have three weeks off, 10 weeks and three weeks off. Now the parents don't like it because they like summer vacation, but we don't have the retention problem. We've always had with summer vacation and the kids like it a lot more. And I said, great. The other thing that blew me away was, you know, I was knocking, you know, I was, I was talking about keyboarding and some of the stuff and one guy came up to me and says, do you know how long we're going to teach cursive next year? And I said, how long? He said, two weeks. I said, why two weeks? He says, well, that's as long as it will take them to learn to write their name. What else are they going to need cursive for in the future? So, I mean, there's pockets out there that are just blowing my mind by literally doing that. And in every single case, the student, the school superintendent had the back of a student their back was covered by a strong school board. Mm -hmm. So to me, the school, the school board is the interface between moving forward and not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's pivot to higher ed. So part of the narrative in K-12 is do well in K-12, get good grades, get into a good college, become success in your life. And we all know that there's um, some disruption that's going on in the higher ed realm. So what would you tell parents and students about that narrative and about what's what's happening in higher ed in the next 10 years or so. So here comes my story about online courses that I told you about higher ed. Mm -hmm. So it was 2000, it was 1998 and I was traveling around uh, as head of global sales to try and get people to consider taking community, taking <laughs> online courses for community colleges, right? We did, we would have, you know, we had some really, 
great college and 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 uh, graduate teachers teaching these courses, right? And nobody was going to buy this. We're not going to have online courses. So here's what I came up with. So there's a man who goes to sleep for 300 years, and he wakes up in 1998, wakes up in 2019, and you show him a car, and he doesn't know what it is. And you take him outside, and he hears the sound of a train whistling. You go, what is that? It's a train. He says, I don't know. What is a train? And he looks up in the sky, and he sees an airplane, and he doesn't understand it. And he sees a flat screen TV and he thinks it's a window and he tries to look behind it to see where it's come, where the image is coming from. And he can't figure this out. And then you walk this man who's been asleep for 300 years into a university classroom and he says, oh, a university classroom. <laughs> right. It's been the same since the 1600s. So name me something that's been the same the 1600s. An individual standing in front of a collection of individuals who are listening to him monotone or her monotone. And name me something that hasn't changed for 300 years that's effective, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing to say about higher ed. Second thing to say about higher ed is when I graduated from college as an aging baby boomer, the boomers were told by the commencement speakers at the time, you're going to have more than one job in your lifetime. Right. Because baby boomer parents usually had that same job. Oh, he's a postman for 30 years. Or he's my father is a professor for 30 years or whatever. Right. Graduates today are being told you're going to have three to five careers in your lifetime, two or three of which have yet to be invented. So how do you teach an undergraduate to prepare for a life of three to five careers when two or three have yet to be invented. Like when I graduated from college, tech support wasn't a career, right? So um, I guess what that comes down to is what I said earlier. You got to teach people the people skills, the adaptive skills, the creative skills, design thinking um, to be able to adapt. The second thing is that it makes higher ed much less important than lifelong learning. We've moved from a knowledge economy to a learning economy. Always be learning. My father, uh, Sai Huo, uh, Adult Education University of Chicago, coined the phrase lifelong learning. Anybody who's in extension work will know my father's name, right? So I grew up in that environment. So lifelong learning is going to become the dominant education process going forward because we have to always be learning. So therefore, what is college? College is not... And that's what we're talking about. When I talked about the symposium for Sarasota Institute, one of the key questions is what does it mean to be educated in 2035? Right. Um, right. You know, over the last 10 years, I mean, people say to me as a futurist, um, I, I've, I've, I've been asked this probably 50 times after speeches of mo usually moms, about 75% of moms and 25% dads will come up to me and go. So as a futurist, what should my child major in in college to be prepared for the future? And my answer is always the same. If they have a passion or there's something that they're good at, encourage them to do that because loving what you do has a high correlation to being good at. Short of that, they should go 
to a design-oriented institution to de develop the concepts of creativity and design. And if not that, then get a good liberal arts education. STEM is what politicians talk about, right? Because, oh, talk about STEM and you'll sound smart. STEM is so out of date. I mean, one of the things that drives me nuts are these well-meaning, there's a woman who set up this academy to teach third grade girls how to code, right? Because coding in tech is such a guy veiled place, <laughs> you know? It's like my father who worked his way through college in the depression by typing rich kids term papers for 25 cents a page or whatever it was, made me learn typing between my seventh and eighth grade. And at that point in time, it was a good skill to learn, but the only job I could have gotten would be a typing pool. Well, machines are self-coding. So it's one of these misguided things. Oh, by the, certainly by the time the third grader gets out of college, there's going to be no coding jobs, let alone high school. So it's a classic case of somebody wanting to be smart and, and equal, liberate the girls and prepare them for something that won't exist. Right. I mean, so it, uh, I don't know what to say other than. And the other thing that really bothers me is in the current landscape of, of this camp, of this election about, well, we need to subsidize student debt and all that. It's like. No, you don't. First of all, subsidizing student debt mostly subsidizes the upper middle class. The second thing is, the first thing you do is before you subsidize debt, go into higher ed and say, why is it that higher ed has increased faster than any other cost of living since 1980, including healthcare? It's the fastest increasing above inflation of anything else. Go to the colleges and say, justify why you've quintupled the price of a year of college in the last 20 years before we will even think of subsidizing your student loans. So to me, I don't know what the answer is. I just think that the answer is that when I was in college in the late 60s, there were teachers and a few deans and a few administrators, and now there's all kinds of administrators. I don't know what, what the cost is, but it's not a relic, you know, go in and blow it up. Higher ed, is the most conservative instant in terms of its structure it's the most conservative institutionalized out-of-date irrelevant part of education wow it is <laughs> i mean you know push back on that i'm, I'm, I'm you know i mean I, it's certainly an opinion but i'll i'll stand and have that conversation so thanks for sharing your thoughts on higher education um, it sounds like you're really passionate about the work that needs to be done there, um, K-12 as well. So let's transition into our lightning round. And okay. uh, we added our lightning round this season. And the reason we added it is to get some more resources for our listeners and for ourselves to peruse about these topics. So are you Great ready? Idea. Yes. <laughs> Who is one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about future thinking, either inside or outside the K-12 domain? Outside, I would say two things. I would truly, you know, and I don't mean this selfishly, my book, Entering the Shift Age, published in 2012, about the future. The good news is I wrote it in 2012, so you can see what I got right and got wrong. The other is Homo Deus by Harari. Uh, he's the biggest thinker on the planet right now, and Homo Deus is a history of the future. Reading that book will open the minds of any educator. 
because he is talking about what is going to be in the biggest terms possible. So Homo Deus by Harari. All right, we will add that link uh, for our listeners. Second, if you are recommending maybe another book to our listeners, what might that book be? Alvin Toffler, Marshall McLuhan, and Buckminster Fuller, the three futurists I mentioned, are so relevant for what's going on today that uh, any, you know, operating manual for Spaceship Earth, Utopia Oblivion for Buckminster Fuller, the medium is the message from, from Marshall McLuhan, and uh, Power Shift or Revolutionary Wealth from uh, Alvin Toffler. Those are the biggest books. I, I really believe that sometimes, the reason I'm good as a futurist, I know it's a lightning round, is that I jump on different verticals. Educators keep reading within the vertical of education so they can't bring in new ideas outside. I'm trying to give you books that will open up educators' minds. Great suggestions. We'll link those um, also. And finally, is there an online source, resource, or person from whom you regularly learn? Um, it's really hard. I think Singularity University is one because that will put people's minds way far into the future. I think um, I, I want to push sarasotainstitute.global. So let's wrap up this uh, great conversation here, David. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on. What's next for you that you'd like to let our listeners in on? Well, uh, as Olmsted said, make no small plans. I'm right. I'm one kind of reinventing the way publishing works and I'm doing it around the concept of capitalism has to change. So I'm doing a trilogy now called Moving to a Finite Earth Economy, a trilogy of ebooks only, $2.99 each. And basically the concept is, and, and it, it, it's called finiteearthaconomy.com. By the end of the week, it will be ready. So by the time the podcast goes up, it'll be fine. The concept is that capitalism invented 225 years ago, is no longer functioning. Um, climate change, capitalism and the growth economies is the cause of climate change. So climate, if we don't move to a finite earth economy by 2030, there will not be civilization by 2100. So from a climate change point of view, capitalism has to change. Capitalism like Soros and Dahlia are all saying, has, has created the greatest wealth inequality since October 1929, if you know what happened then. And so well, capitalism has created wealth inequality, which is a threat to society, and growth economies have caused climate change, which is a threat to civilization. So I'm writing to talk about the need to reinvent capitalism uh, by 2030. And the Sarasota Institute of 21st Century think tank, sarasotainstitute.global, because um, it is global. And the 10 topics, including education, healthcare, climate change, technology, and the rest, democracy, capitalism, that are all going to need to change for the 21st century. So what are the big questions to ask? And I basically say, what does, 20, what does education look like in the 21st century? What does healthcare look like in the 21st century? Answer those questions. That's what the Sarasota Institute's responsibility is for the world, the country in Sarasota in particular. Well, thanks so much for joining us, David. We linked several of the resources you shared. 
and um, including what's next for you and uh, some of your books links and singularity sarasodeinstitute.global and even included finiteearthaconomy.com um, to thank you <laughs> get that out to our listeners each episode we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation this episode's question as a result of our conversation today, how might you shift your leadership to be more focused on the future? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for Season 5, Episode 43. That's all for this episode. We'll be back soon with another conversation featuring another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, David. Thanks. Bye-bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.